What is biblical sexuality? What does the Bible say about pleasure and purity? How do the purity laws of an ancient time affect how we see our lives today? I am Ashley Lynn Hanks, and today on the Unlearning Podcast, we will be exploring these questions and more in today's episode of Season 1 on Pleasure and Purity. Welcome back to another episode of the Unlearning Podcast. My name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and I am a podcaster, writer, photographer, and a pastor in the Los Angeles area. For anyone new to the show, welcome. The Unlearning Podcast is all about helping you learn to love Jesus and your neighbor through healthy, life-giving Christian theology. On today's show, I want to unpack this idea of biblical sexuality. In our attempts to be LGBT-affirming, And in our desire to be inclusive of young people, many of us struggle with an inclusivity that isn't rooted in scripture. In other words, we hunger for a quote-unquote biblical basis by which to be inclusive with people of different sexual identities and expressions. And we struggle to find it. But instead of giving you the top five Bible verses that support LGBT affirmation and perhaps sex before marriage— or without marriage, I want to unpack where we got our biblical sexuality from and help us reframe how we use scripture to live out our sex lives. Because I think the biggest challenge with all that we've been taught about quote-unquote biblical sexuality is the term biblical. Let me explain. I recently came across an article by the Gospel Coalition by Paul Carter, who wrote five surprising things that the Bible says about sex. To start off, Carter claims that the Bible says that sex is good. Carter wrote that, and I quote, Before the fall, before sin, sex was part of the created order. It was good, all caps, very good, and was engaged in freely without inhibition of any kind by the man and the woman. End quote. Carter is drawing his interpretation off of Genesis 2, chapter 25, where it says that both people were naked and not ashamed. There is nothing in this verse that says sex was very good, engaged in freely, without inhibition of any kind. That's a very far, far-fetched interpretation of Adam and Eve being naked and not ashamed. Not because it's impossible, but because it's highly improbable that people understood sexuality in terms of releasing inhibitions prior to recent history. And I'm talking super recent, like the sexual revolution of the 20th century. Just think about it. Two to three thousand years ago, which is when Genesis was probably written, procreation was essential to survival. It wasn't necessarily used for pleasure. You're worth as a woman, was dependent upon your ability to conceive. Children were a couple's retirement plan for when their bodies began to fail and their ability to farm and hunt began to wane. That doesn't mean that people never had pleasure in sex and that people have been sexually inhibited for the last two to three thousand years. The ideas that we have about sexual inhibition are relatively new, especially for the Judeo-Christian world. 
Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are what we call origin stories that the Jews of antiquity shared about why the world is the way it is today. For example, there is the seven-day creation story, and then the Adam and Eve creation story, Noah's Ark, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, etc. So these are more like myths than actual events. If that sounds heretical to you, just stay with me for a minute. If you take the Cain and Abel story literally, there's no way that those brothers can procreate without incest. If you take the Adam and Eve story literally, it's just any part of it, creation, the fall, the banishing from Eden. If you take that literally, then the first creation story about people being created within an order of seven days is wrong. The seven-day creation story emphasizes the created order and completion of creation. Just think about it. On the first day, God created this. And on the second day, God created this. There's a kind of order and a kind of completion at the seventh day. In the Adam and Eve creation story, this first couple was created in a different order from the first creation story. And God makes them out of dust. And there are several Noah's Ark stories, similar, found throughout antiquity, so many so that it's not exactly accurate to call that story a Hebrew story. It's unwise to look at our origin stories as factual events. They are sacred stories that inform us of the ways ancient Jews understood God and creation and gender roles, but they are certainly not a reflection of the way everyone in antiquity saw the ancient world. And they are certainly not scientific documents that tell us exactly what happened two to three thousand years ago. And so it is unwise to base how we understand God, creation, and gender off of the book of Genesis. A healthy understanding of the creation narratives is rooted in the kindness of God in creating us to commune with them. There is nothing wrong with believing that God created everything with a kind of completion and perfection. The problem arises when we believe that we know God's intention for all creation as if we were God herself. There's nothing wrong with holding fast to the second creation story of Adam and Eve, as long as we see it as evidence of God in process with creation, creating new life every day with our participation. The problem arises when we look to the Adam and Eve story as the only model for human connection. For many people seeking a quote-unquote biblical understanding of sexuality, we turn to Genesis, extracting meaning from a very few old verses that are simply just not there. This idea that people engaged in very good all-cap sex freely without inhibition of any kind is just not found in Genesis 1 through 3. Being naked and not ashamed is a beautiful expression of a wonderful ideal, but it's not a scientific fact for ancient Jews, especially when the procreation from sex was so vital for survival. (laughs) Carter goes on to say that husbands owe sexual intimacy to their wives as if Jesus made this mandate. But instead of pulling from the Gospels, he makes his interpretation based off of a letter of Paul's to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, Paul wrote, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If we're looking at Paul's words literally, 
as we are encouraged to do in the evangelical church. Paul is making a case for the entitlement that husbands have over their wives' bodies and their wives' sexuality, and that somehow this entitlement is mutual. Paul's letter was written during the time of the Roman Empire when women were considered property. And so thinking about Paul's words within that context makes him radical. But we would be naive to assume that the only people who thought that way were people of the Roman Empire. Many people still think this way today about women's bodies, that our bodies are the objects for male desire, for the male gaze, and for male pleasure, and that what we do with our reproductive abilities ultimately belongs to the men in our lives. But the truth is, no one is entitled to your body or to your sexuality, regardless of whether or not you are a male or female or gender you identify. You do not owe anyone sex, whether or not you are married. To give up your body or to force yourself to have sex when you do not want to is to embody a kind of detached sexual experience, not a sexual experience rooted in wholeness. This happens in marriages more often than we'd care to know, especially Christian marriages rooted in the purity culture. Sexual entitlement is not a healthy expression of sex, whether you're married or not. The third claim that Carter asserts that is in the Bible is that married couples should have sex often. Carter quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, where Paul wrote, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come again together, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we are again with a pastor making claims about what the Bible says by only quoting Paul. And I'm sorry, there is nothing even here that says God wants you to have sex often. Paul is just encouraging people to not allow their religion to get in the way of their sex lives. How ironic. Evangelical pastors take way too much liberty in their biblical interpretation. You almost have to do a literal interpretation of what they say side by side with the text in order to really understand what's being said. There is also this idea in Paul's words to the Corinthian church that if we don't have sex, Satan will tempt us because we lack self-control, as if we are so full of sexual hormones that without the controlled sexual activity within marriage, our evil impulses will get the better of us and the Lord of hell will take over our bodies. Paul's words are so toxic. You are not an evil hormonal being who is naturally bent towards perversion. This is true whether you're LGBTQIA or whether you're heterosexual, married or not. You are not an evil hormonal being who is naturally bent towards perversion. You are created in the image of God with the capacity to do both good and harm. Your creator has blessed you with the ability to decide for yourself how you would like to show up in the world. We call this free will and 99.9% of the Christians believe it. The fourth surprising thing the Bible has to say about sex, according to Carter, is that, and I quote, it's not just about the kids. Carter interprets the verse in Genesis where it says, they shall become one flesh, to mean, and I quote, sex is about pursuing physical, emotional, sexual, and ontological union. It is about submission, exploration, discovery, and delight. Done right under blessing. It often results in children, but it isn't ultimately for that. It is for the glory of God and for the comfort of mankind. That's a subtle yet very significant distinction. End quote. 
Now, I'm sorry, Carter, but this kind of understanding of sexuality is not rooted in a 3,000-year-old document. It's a very, very progressive way of seeing sex, and I would argue that it came to us again through our secular culture. For the majority of human history, sex was not about pleasure. It was about procreation and power. Its main function was procreation, and it was often used to exert power in the form of rape, especially in warfare. There is nothing about submission in they became one flesh. (laughs) Becoming one flesh implies a kind of unique union that detaches a person from their loyalties to their families of origin and realigns them to their lover. Please don't hear anything there about submission. It's about realignment. When you become one flesh with another person, either through marriage or partnership, you are detaching from your family of origin and you're attaching yourself to a new family with your lover. We have to be careful not to interpret more than what is actually in a scripture verse, because when we do, we make a big theological claim that pulls us towards our agenda and not necessarily that of the one we worship, Jesus of Nazareth. The fifth and final surprising thing that Carter claims is in the Bible is that sex is not what makes you fully human. And so to support his argument, he names a bunch of famous celibates, namely John the Baptist, Jeremiah, and Jesus. But that's not a claim that is made in the narratives of scripture, meaning it was never documented that Jesus said, it's great being single. Jesus never said that. There is no actual documentation of Jesus saying anything about his marital status or his relationship status. So he could have been married. We really don't know. Carter then quotes that personal note from Paul, where Paul wishes everyone could be single like him, emphasizing a toxic idea that celibacy is more holy, more pure than marriage. It's as if Paul is saying that if you're going to do the messy thing, you might as well do it with your wife. Otherwise, it's better to be single. Jesus never said anything to that degree, and yet we take Paul's words over Jesus every single day. I do believe that Paul Carter of the Gospel Coalition is a well-meaning Christian who pastors people from a good place, who simply wants to help people understand and think well. But I do think he is preaching and teaching toxic theology about sex and romance that is extremely harmful. If this article were titled correctly, it would be five passages in 1 Corinthians we have falsely interpreted to make patriarchal claims about gender and sexuality. The biggest thing I want you to take away from this episode is this idea of biblical sexuality, biblical marriage, and biblical anything just isn't biblical. To attach the word biblical to anything is factually misleading and theologically manipulative. The term biblical implies that God spoke a cohesive and errant truth through every single person who wrote every single word in scripture. It implies that there is one voice, not 66, and that it's all saying the same thing. In case you didn't know, there are so many contradictory passages. The Bible has been edited over the years by different religious leaders many times over. Every Bible translation is an interpretation. Hear me again. Every Bible translation, ESV, NIV, NASB. It's all an interpretation. That's why there are so many English Bible translations. There is no way that one voice is found in Scripture. It is more accurate and more factual to cite the author of the verse you are quoting and to do your best to interpret that specific passage within the specific context it was written for the specific audience the writer intended it for. 
not as something to be applied to all people at all times in all situations. It's also important to allow philosophy, ethics, history, psychology, and womanism to inform how you interpret scripture. When all else fails, prioritize what is written in the Gospels over everything else. I'm not saying that scripture outside of the Gospels is wrong. It's just important to recognize that Jesus is God and Paul is not. One last note on this idea of biblical sexuality. Sex throughout the Bible is all over the place. David practiced polygamy, as did many of the kings of Israel and Judah. Some people married relatives in their family, like Abraham. Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. There is no such thing as what we understand as biblical sexuality. It just doesn't exist. And so we would be wise to invite schools of thought like psychology and philosophy and ethics and womanism into the conversation on how we should be and connect in sex and romance. So where do we go from here? If we don't have biblical sexuality, what does scripture say about sex and sexual ethics? Well, in the coming episodes, we're going to explore this topic more. And we're going to explore how we can use our Christian faith to help inform how we think about pleasure, purity, sex, and romance. I hope you stay tuned. Until next time, my name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and you are listening to The Unlearning Podcast.